The Incomparable is brought to you this week by Howl.fm, a brand new app and website that changes the way you think about podcasts. It's like Netflix for podcasts. With Howl Premium, you get exclusive access to dozens of original miniseries, audio documentaries, and comedy albums, as well as the archives from WTF with Mark Maron and all the Earwolf shows like Comedy Bang Bang and How Did This Get Made. And there are some unique miniseries on Howl, including one that Incomparable listeners would really like, called Canon Commentaries, where film critics debate a film and whether it belongs in the canon of the great films. The first episode is about Goodfellas. My vote is yes, that is one of the great films. Anyway, you can get access to all this exclusive content on your iPhone, Android phone, and on the web for $4.99 a month. And with promo code SNELL, you will get a full month of free trial. Redeem your promo code by going to Howl.fm and entering code SNELL at checkout. That's H-O-W-L dot F-M. Use promo code SNELL at checkout for a month free of Howl Premium. The Incomparable, number 275, December 2015. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. We are continuing our celebration of uh, holiday things in early December before Star Wars happens and ruins everything for everyone forever. And uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about two old movies. This is basically an edition of Old Movie Club. Club. With a holiday spin. Oh, 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 old movie club. Yes, oh, li- listen to that. That is very festive. <laughs> that's the that's the uh, Christmas theme to old movie th- club as performed oh, by. That must have cost us billions of dollars it, to it uh, did. together. Taking out all the stops for Christmas. We're also going to be talking about 1968's The Lion in Winter, a film not usually considered a Christmas film, but is set. Says you. Is set at <laughs> Christmas time. Right. So mm-hmm. I would like to go chronologically, but I should check in with our uh, our old movie sommelier himself, Mr. Philip Michaels. Uh, hello. Dealer's choice, man. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's where I'm going to go. Um, uh, it's uh, Thank you for selecting these films. But uh, le- let me uh, introduce the people who watch them with us. Well, not like with us. No, personally. we didn't all gather on a couch together. No, imagine, imagine that we could have all shouted at Peter O'Toole simultaneously. But instead, we did it in our own homes. Uh, I would have shouted at you all to be quiet while shouting at Peter O'Toole. That movie is glorious. Lisa Schmeiser is here with us. You just heard her. Hello. Hi. I will defend the line in winter. Excellent. Well, nobody, I don't think it's on trial, not like Santa Claus or anything. Dan Morin is also here. Hello. <laughs> Calamity, cry kitties. I'm not in the habit of substituting for spurious panelists, Jason. Thank you. That's a great line. Uh, David Lohr, hello. Hello. Uh, my only question tonight is, what shall we hang, the holly or each other? And, uh, of course, Mr. Steve Lutz. Jason, how, from where we started, did we ever reach this Christmas? I'd like to know. It's uh, it's it's a good question. The district attorney is a Republican. It's not a more lion in winter uh, uh, references in the opener than I had anticipated. Yeah. <laughs> I refuse to acknowledge them, quite frankly. I, I was going to go with it's cold. A man's got to do something to keep warm. Yeah, there you go. My favorite guy in the movie. That's there you go. Where's the movie told from his perspective? Your Philip Michaels is intoxicated, madam. <laughs> Shameful. To be fair, we knew that. It, it's harder to make the, the references that involve a spinning newspaper headline. And there are so many of those in Miracle on 34th Street. Okay, Phil, Miracle on 34th Street. This was the more uh, traditional holiday selection that you made. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it, just as a sort of a preamble to the selections here, I do not like Christmas movies. Um, I don't like... I don't I'm surprised like surprised that is. 
Yeah, I don't like your Santa Claus. I don't like your uh, your uh, 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 whatever uh, Christmas movie. Your you Christmas shoes? No. Oh yeah. No, that one's <laughs> the exception that proves the rule. That is a brilliant movie. Um, but uh, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, I kind of like because it has a certain earnestness and and charm to it, and some good supporting character work. And y- you could do worse. Basically, you are, you are lucky that I took an oath as a host uh, to not stab the guests mm. for saying I kind of like Miracle on 34th Street when you made me watch The Lion in Winter. Good God, yeah. man. So you got your uh, Miracle on 34th Street. It is it is Thanksgiving morning. You are having the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Maureen O'Hara, recently deceased, R.I.P. Mm-hmm. Maureen O'Hara. She is the lady who puts on the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Um, and she has got a problem because her Santa is dead drunk. It's cold. A man's got to keep warm no. somehow. Mm. He is he is uh, not even able to stand up straight on the float. Nope. Doesn't seem like he has to. He just has to sit in the sleigh and wave at kids, but anyhow, let's recast the movie from his <laughs> point having of trouble view. with the whip is the problem. <laughs> and I'm not sure he's capable of sitting. I think yeah. he, he's sort of like just flat on his back because he's sort unable of leaning to... Festival. Mm-hmm. Where did they find this Santa Claus? Well, in my experience, you just sort of wedge Santa Claus into the chimney and that yeah. uh, keeps him upright throughout the career. Into the scene walks uh, Edmund Gwynn, who you might see as a ripe, jolly old elf because mm. he has a beard like Santa and is um, pleasingly plump for 1947. I, I I would wager. Yeah. Uh, by today, he is he is the He's the thin ripped cut like a steak Santa. Um, but <laughs> but back then, nineteen forty seven, he doesn't need any padding. No, post, he doesn't need padding. You know. Mm-hmm. And he uh, he berates drunken Santa for being drunken Santa, and uh, uh, Maureen O'Hara uh, the, presses him into action as the. Uh, as, as the uh, replacement Santa on the float. And it turns out he's a big hit and everyone loves him. Didn't know that, like, just driving by on a float, people would have that relationship with the you guy on the float. You can find toys of all kinds at Macy's, Phil. Yes. yes. But it, but in this movie, and then Santa addresses the crowd. Although keep in mind that most of these people are probably traumatized by the fact that they just saw them strip drunk Santa yeah. down to his skivvies while he was still on the float. <laughs> well, those would only be the people around the, the, the starting point of the float and in it, Central And it was Park a bunch West, of clowns so. that did it, too, yes. which makes it even which worse. Which explains a lot about why people are scared of clowns. And this was apparently the 1946 Macy's Parade. They actually filmed it yep. there rather than... Mm-hmm. And, and Edmund Gwynn, um, who, who plays the part, actually delivered Santa's Sermon on the Mount at the end about <laughs> coming to Macy's and, and buying toys. the toy makers. The Bible finally makes sense. Thank you. It is easier for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for you to find no values at Macy's. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so popular proves this, um, this Santa to be, uh, he is hired uh, with very little interviewing process to work at Macy's during the holiday season. We um, we then find out two things. One, um, Santa actually thinks that he is Santa. He he goes by the name Chris Kringle when he fills out his employment card. Which he says that he checks. lives in the North Pole and that his next of kin are the reindeer, which <laughs> is really is mean to Mrs. Claus. Yeah. I think that he cut her out of the will. Is um, well, I mean, it, maybe it, this is before they married. Macy's HR practices should come under some intense scrutiny here. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a reason he's not living at the North Pole anymore, obviously. Mm. She's got. She got the igloo and all the elves. It was falsified when they needed to to, to fill out the card. Some clerk just uh, put it in as a joke because there were there were no checks. 
They just found a guy on the street and gave him the job. The old guy was a drunk. How much worse could it be? Yeah, exactly. This um, is before so, the unions. So Maureen O'Hara and her, her assistant, who is one of those 1940s, 1950s guys with the pencil thin mustache and the <laughs> demeanor that I that I love. It's not <laughs> that Shellhammer. Yeah. He's got a great name too. Julian Shellhammer. He's is here he's the head of the children's department at Macy's, right? And she's, yeah, he's the, she's toys, the toy department. Or, or the toy department. And she's like the marketing person, basically. Exactly. And they're all oh, old Mr. Macy's gonna have our hide that we hired this crazy man. And adding to that fact, Santa is telling people when they come to him, instead of pushing the toys that Macy's wants him to push, he will say, oh, no, nope, there's a shop on Lexington that has that for a much better price. Or go to Gimbel's, mm. and um, uh, that's going to go over well, except that it does go over well because the people who uh, come to Santa are so impressed with his forthrightness that they vow to uh, come back to Macy's again and again. Brand loyalty. Yeah. Yep. Good customer service. So Mr. Macy, rather than being angry at Maureen O'Hara and Julian Shellhammer, are, <laughs> is, uh, is quite happy uh, that, that, that this whole Santa thing is, is going on. And, he, he, uh, and, and soon Gimbel's is following suit by telling people to, to go to Macy's and other stores. And suddenly the stores are locked in a nationwide battle of, of niceness and not tricking the customer is the, the implication that goes on here. And there's even a, a, a summit between Mr. Mr. Macy and Mr. Gimble, uh, in which uh, in which uh, Chris Kringle is is I guess the mediator, and there there's lots of handshaking. So um, we we should mention a little bit about Maureen O'Hara's uh, uh, personal life. She is a divorcee uh, with a kid. Scandalous. Mm-hmm. And the kid is, in fact, the movie um, was, uh, I forget which decency organization, like, railed against it. The, it Catholic, but they... the Catholic Decency Organization, mm. I believe. Yeah, the, the something like that. Decency yeah, that League. sounds about right. Sounds yeah, like the the, the, because, because a, divor- divorce. a divorcee. Oh, you can't no, show she... a divorcee who's thriving <laughs> and whose child isn't busy burning things down out of anger. But it's... they couldn't make her a widow because the whole point is that she's sort of closed off on happy Love. nice things and is very serious and businesslike now and it's pr- presumably because of her ne'er-do-well husband uh, and doesn't out. believe in fantasy or, mm-hmm. or 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 fiction or or telling her child about santa claus she's passed that down she's, down she's been around the block the kid we should mention is played by natalie wood and i what i believe is her first role mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh she, she actually um, uh, Lisa and I were talking about this as we watched the movie together. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, normally, both of us despise child actors, and <laughs> Natalie Wood is actually uh, quite good in this, particularly when she gives Chris Kringle the old stank eye. Yep, she, oh, yes. she's got the best face in the business and for she, a child. It's delightful. She pulls on the beard. That's pretty good. I, I also yep. like the moment where um, after she does the cute kid thing of like, "Oh, Mama, please, he doesn't have any mm-hmm. place to have Thanksgiving dinner," and she's like. Oh, all right, and then there's a nice line where she says, "Did I, I ask, ask him right? right? <laughs> yeah. did, I, did, did I ask her right? Did I do that right?" The man you are referring to is John Payne, who lives yes. in the Mr. Gailey building. Fred mm-hmm. Gailey is the character's name. John Payne is the actor. He stars in one of my favorite underrated film noirs, Kansas City Confidential. Hmm. By the way, mm-hmm. that's a that's that's one you should watch maybe instead of Lion in the Winter if you're Jason. All right, thanks. Good tip. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, he uh, really wants to get to know Maureen O'Hara, and why wouldn't mm. you? Maureen O'Hara is stunning. But uh, so he uses her child to do it. So he uses her <laughs> child to trick trick his way into her heart, and he fully believes in 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 
uh, fantasy and happiness and, and telling yarns and and even uh, volunteers to uh, put up uh, Chris Kringle when it's determined that Chris Kringle needs a place to live since the old folks home that he was living in um, is quite far away. It's in Long Island. It's very far away. Although admittedly, he primarily lets Chris Kringle into his house as an, another means to uh, get into Maureen O'Hara's pants. Yeah. Oh, well, sure. Can I point no. out most importantly there, I love the line, I'll take care of Susie if you'll take care of her mother, which is the for me the jumping off point of the strangers on a train version of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just waiting for him to say crisscross. Crisscross. Criss cross. <laughs> yeah, no, John Payne's game is strong in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> John Payne is not a man to be deterred. Fellas, if you want to know how to warm your way into a divorcee's heart. Have watch, an old man me. share your bedroom. Yes, have an old man share your bedroom and talk to children. Uh, well, and we haven't even gotten into his success as a uh, as a lawyer because there is a moment later in this film where he, he has a great moment of like front page, not bad, right? So he's got he's got it all working. Basically, yeah. he is the master of the universe, Mr. Gailey. Yes. Exactly. Um, we should also point out that all is not well at Macy's. There is at least one Macy's employee who is not happy that Chris Kringle is now working there, and that would be mean old Granville Sawyer, the the, the store psychiatrist, psychologist. psychologist. He's Mister Sawyer, right? He he keeps yes. he keeps deriding the actual doctors, um, mm -hmm. even though he is a total fraud and a charlatan. And he is he is not just your must mustache twirling villain. He is your eyebrows twirling <laughs> villain. So he freelances as a psychiatrist uh, in his off periods. Yes. Yeah. With He's an Alfred. amateur <laughs> psychologist. And that is what brings the controversy between Granville Sawyer and Chris Kringle to a head. Uh, Granville Sawyer didn't want him working there because he, he's crazy. He can't work here. When, in fact, Chris, what Chris Kringle did was immediately identify all of Mr. Sawyer's neuroses and yes. suggest that he was unhappy at home, which he very clearly is because then he shouts at his wife after he leaves. And so... As a matter of revenge, basically, he, he declares uh, Chris Kringle to be incompetent. Right. And we mentioned the armchair psychiatry, psychology. There's a there's the weirdest looking kid in the world who sweeps up at Macy's. Uh, what, what, what the hell is his name? Alfred. Albert? Alfred. Oh, that, Alfred. Alfred. Oh, that, that allegedly 17-year-old blob who enjoys dressing <laughs> like Santa Claus so he can make children happy? Yeah. That there's oh. a lot of alarm bells going off there with that kid. Well, that's you sound like Mr. Sawyer, who wow. tells him very yeah, much the same a, thing. That's a little judgmental yeah. there. Also, the poor guy is derided for being overweight the whole time when, again, by maybe by 1947 the standards, he doesn't need any padding. He's husky. He's, he's yeah, husky. He's, but he's, I'd say he's reasonably. I am not body shaming him in the slightest. I'm behavior shaming him because. No, he's, he's a weirdo. Yeah. He really <laughs> is a weirdo. And he, and he, and he has the delivery. Yeah. Gosh, Mr. Kringle, I sure do love giving, making children happy. It's I like just want children to handle the packages I give them. And, uh, yeah, 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 there's a lot of bad yeah. isms floating around this world. <laughs> one, of the, one of the voices is commercialism. Yeah. Well done, Alfred. You've really made us think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chris Kringle's got garbage in his pocket, and he says, where should I put this? He says, just put it on the floor. It'll Throw give it me on the floor. I get tired of sweeping up dust. There it is. Yep. I've only seen this movie 37 times. <laughs> he's encouraging people to throw things on the floor just to keep him entertained as he sweeps. Yeah. So Granville Sawyer uh, has been doing some uh, freelance psychiatry on on poor, dumb, stupid, gullible Alfred yep. and has planted all sorts of ideas about what a... What I hate a my father, apparently. Yes, what a wreck he is. And uh, this this sends uh, Chris Kringle into a blind fury. And uh, he goes to confront Granville Sawyer and in the ensuing argument, 
bops Granville Sawyer on the head with his umbrella, yeah. raising a comical welt. That's a mistake. It was a, it was a moment of weakness. <laughs> yes, which is at the point that everyone decides, well, turns out he is kind of kooky. Let's send him to Bellevue. And uh, uh, Chris Kringle, who up until that point has shown a very good felicity for uh, uh, passing mental competency tests by knowing who the uh, president was. and uh, Under no- John Adams, no less. Yes, uh, and knowing John who the vice president, president was under John yes. Quincy Adams. Yeah. Bet, bet Mr. Sawyer doesn't know that. Um, Although apparently he's wrong. Yeah. Well, <laughs> sure. But whatever. Yeah. Believe, There wasn't Steve. any Wikipedia. Filmmakers didn't have Wikipedia, that's right, hmm? in 1947. Well. Mm-hmm. But this time around, he's so depressed by the whole thing and the fact that he blames uh, Maureen O'Hara for setting him up that he, he fails the test at Bellevue, and it looks like he's going to be stuck in the state mental hospital for quite a long yep. time. Let me take a break to tell you about our sponsor. It is... Casper mattresses. I sleep on a Casper mattress every single night unless I'm traveling or something. But otherwise, I am sleeping on a Casper all the time. These are obsessively engineered American-made mattresses at a shockingly fair price. Now, you spend a third of your life sleeping. It's true. I mean, we have to sleep. It's how the human brain kind of resets for the next day. It's very important to health. You need to make sure you're sleeping on a good mattress. Casper brings to the table two different technologies. Uh, They like to say for better nights and brighter days. I can attest to this. It is a very comfortable mattress. I've been sleeping on it for more than a year. Uh, It's so much better than my old mattress. They put a layer of latex foam at the top, so it's got a really good feel, and it's very comfy. And then there's memory foam beneath that gives you a whole lot of support. I know that people are sometimes skeptical about these kind of weird, newfangled foam technologies. I can tell you, it's just a really good mattress. It feels great. It has the right sink. It has the right bounce. It's not like I'm sleeping on top of a trampoline, which was the worst with my old mattress. Uh, And here's some great news for you. You don't have to be afraid about the fact that you might be ordering a mattress over the internet. And that is because Casper has a risk-free trial and return policy. It's not for one week or two weeks. It's for 100 days. They will deliver your mattress straight to you. It comes in a box right to your door. You open it up. You've got a mattress. You can sleep on it for 100 days. And after that 100 days, if it takes that long, you'll know. You'll know in a a week, probably. Um, You can uh, call Casper, and they will pick it back up and take it away. And uh, you you get your money back. So there's really no risk to trying out a Casper mattress. I have had a great experience with mine and, uh, and, you know, shopping on the Internet, although shopping in a mattress store... Not so great either. Shopping on the internet, though, you're worried, what if this is not something I like? You don't have to worry about that with Casper. The prices are reasonable, $500 for a twin, up to $950 for a king. If you compare that to other mattresses in other places, you'll find out it's actually a pretty good value. And now we'll make it even better. You can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash Snell, that's me, and use code Snell at checkout. $50 off. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you to Casper for sponsoring The Incomparable. I was never really explained, at least to my satisfaction, why Chris can't just go right back and retake the test that he recently failed. Nope, you, you only fail get one shot at the male competence, <laughs> mental competency test. Yeah, this isn't the SAT, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> he failed his verbal, but he did great on math. <laughs> Um, no, he, uh, but, but uh, Fred, Fred Gailey, John Payne, comes to visit him in the stir, and... Um, 
and gives him a talking to and convinces him, hey, Maureen O'Hara was starting to, to believe in you, and uh, you were getting through to both her and the daughter, and that gives Edmund Gwynn hope, and they decide to, to fight this uh, this fact that uh, he he's going to be declared crazy and kept up in the, the mental institution for the, the rest of his life. And so they challenge it at a hearing presided over by the great Gene Lockhart as the judge. Um, oh, Gene yes. Lockhart, if you ever see uh, his gal Friday, he, he is the incompetent oh, yeah. sheriff, and he made a career <laughs> out of playing basically bumbling, bug-eyed officials who are in over their head, and he is in over his head here. <laughs> he and, and William Frawley are the greatest one-two punch that this film has to offer. William Frawley, who you may recognize as good old Fred Mertz, is the political fixer advising uh, Judge Gene Lockhart in this case. And um, I, I always believe... think this, that the courtroom is going to be. Lo- I mean, having having watched Anatomy of a Murder, I always think the courtroom here is going to be longer. It's the last maybe half hour of the movie, a little bit less. It, it, it and yet um, there there's nobody better in this entire movie than William Frawley, and he's in like five scenes. <laughs> oh yeah, he is great, and and most of his most of his moments on screen are just him nodding at the judge. So, and the, the, his, his first appearance, he just puts his cigar in his mouth, and I laugh out loud every time. Oh come on, you got You can't. You you can't discount his great scene where he advises the judge about the uh, all the people who are going to really love him after he declares that this guy, that Santa Claus doesn't exist. Then you got the AFL and the CIO on you, and they're going to love you. Yeah, they, 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 no, his, William Frawley is spectacular. And of course, the best line is where he explains that the only, the only two votes the judge is going to get if he rules that Santa is, uh, is insane are his own and, uh, the district attorney. FDA out there. To, to which the, the judge says the, the district, district attorney is a Republican. <laughs> and he says that very sadly. Oh, it's so in, good. In pure Gene Lockhart fashion. Although he does get his one smug line of, Overruled. Most <laughs> most of what William Frawley does is sit in the courtroom and nod and glare at the judge, and it's so great. It is it's, so it's, great. It's. Wonderful. I also like the odd little scene where he walks into the courtroom and the bailiff sort of gestures to him, telling him he can't smoke in the courtroom <laughs> and he puts the because he's got a cigar. In the other way? Well, no, he just he taps the end of it to show that it isn't lit and, and sticks it back in his mouth. He's he doesn't really need to smoke the cigar. He just has. <laughs> he just to have I thought he was so badass. He's like, I'll just stick the lid end in my mouth. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> It's an interesting interpretation. No, if you, if if all you know of of William Fraley is uh, Fred Mertz or uh, or Uncle Bub from uh, My, <laughs> My Three, Three Sons, Sons, right? Or even th- he plays the priest in the uh, Babe Ruth story with William Bendix. No, this is this is William Fraley's Fraley's greatest role. He is outstanding yeah. in this. Um, and we should also point out the district attorney is played by uh, Miles Archer from the Maltese yes. Falcon. He's slightly so. slightly less uh, of a cad in this movie. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, but still kind of a cat. 100% more longer. screen time, though. Yeah. Yes. Doesn't get shot at all, so <laughs> spoiler alert. Um, uh, the trial proceeds, and, um, you know, we find out that in addition to being really good at wooing widows, uh, John Payne is a pretty, or widows, divorcees, uh, John Payne is also, um, a very good attorney because he's got, he's got the courtroom spinning and he's discredited, uh, Granville Sawyer. Not that that, takes much and he gets mr macy to profess on the stand that he believes chris kringle is actually santa claus and i love that scene too spinning newspapers ahoy the 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 beauty of (laughs) of so much of this film is in these moments of 
it's very easy to see to movies that are just completely uh, just kind of head in the clouds and they're movies that are very cynical. And this movie really walks a line where it's got a lot of both. And, and I love how it how it mixes them all together. And so here, you know, uh, yes, this is a shiny, happy movie about Santa Claus and all of that. But when Mr. Macy is on the stand, I mean, he's he's basically lying under oath because and he's imagining the headlines that Miss Macy declares Santa Claus a fraud. Yeah, he can't renounce yeah. his own Santa Claus in yeah. public and so he goes along with it and and, and, and yes, the spinning headlines appear before him. It's just but, great. But he also sees those smiling children's faces. It's true. So I think in that few seconds you realize maybe he really does believe. Though I, I was watching this movie with my girlfriend who, was a bus- who went to business school and pointed out that everybody acts in self-interest and capitalism basically throughout the entire movie. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, this is a very pro-capitalism movie. Yeah, the entire movie is a love letter to to acquiring stuff, just like it's also a love letter to white flight. I'm. It's just. It's. I, I've never felt like more of a communist than after watching this movie. <laughs> there are a lot of isms out there, Lisa. Mm, well, but I, the very worst is communism. communism. Am I right, Senator McCarthy? <laughs> yeah. No. It's. It was just. You Please know, let me keep working in the movies. Oh, you know, heaven forfend some child not not get a toy. She, she got a house. <laughs> that was a thing where I think poor Phil had to put up with me sputtering for five minutes because I was like, you know, in 20, I was like in 30 years, this child is going to regret hounding her mother out of Manhattan when real estate prices begin to rebound. But she's not. And the reason is that they live in a magical world where Santa Claus is actually real. <laughs> That's the answer here. Is- yeah. And so that way, the real that, and that affects real estate markets, too, because Santa can just move people around at whim. You get enough. Magic exists. Anything can happen. Because mm. um, the, the, like you, Lisa, I struggle and, and Lauren struggles. Too, I know, and this is her favorite movie. I actually hadn't seen this movie until about ten years ago, and I love it. I love it unreservedly. But it's almost like I love it despite all these things that should make me hate it. And mm-hmm. and you you mentioned some of it. Um, there is a very clear message here that uh, what's really important is believing in things that aren't real. <laughs> And uh, no, I don't agree with that at all. I completely disagree with that. In fact, yes, I am one of those people who refuse to tell their children that Santa Claus was real because he's not. (laughs) But uh, so I'm I guess I'm on on uh, Maureen O'Hara's side. Yeah. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're going to take this. We're going to take this to court. (laughs) All of our elementary school aged and comparable listeners are now sobbing uncontrollably. What? Yeah, right. I'm going to reveal whether Santa Claus is real after the sound of the spoiler horn. I think, Jason, your point, though, that this movie really does a good job of, yeah, it has the, well, just believe in fairy tales and everything's great. But it also has the, look, does it kill you to... Exactly. Go along and be nice. Or, and or does it kill you to recommend something at Gimbal's? Or in the end, is that actually better? You're like reconsidering your, you know, it is about enlightened self-interest, but it's also like, don't be kind, don't be such a jerk because there are ways to be nice and empathetic and still have it be good for you. <laughs> Watching this movie uh, this time around, it's very reminiscent of another movie that came out at like a few years later, um, the original Angels in the Outfield, which again, it, it, you just should hate this movie because there's angels helping a baseball team win a pennant and and it should just be the schmaltzy there's an orphan and she sees the angels and but um it really kind of straddles the line um between the the sort of head in the clouds 
ain't everything wonderful and, and a kind of real world not cynicism but a, re, uh, a a realism that and 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 the the end of it is hey just just be a nice person yeah. okay and um also that ends with a, a sham trial as well okay. yeah. so also <laughs> when you're done watching Kansas City Confidential with John Payne okay. go watch Angels in the Outfield all right <laughs> Janet Lee and uh, thanks Phil and you're building people. my you're building my playlist now mm-hmm. this movie's interesting just because it shows you what it, it's basically a forecast for the 1950s when you look at it though because um it lays down a lot of the um a lot of the narrative for you know consume buy it will gratify you it will make you a better person you will feel like your dreams are coming true um you know and that that uh, the, the the post-war culture is, is just beginning to take off at this point and i feel like this movie represents kind of a cultural inflection point that took you right into the 1950s and the explicit the invention of explicit marketing toward children and um you know again the movement to the suburbs which was done for a wide variety of reasons both economic and sociological so, 19 years before um before charlie brown christmas um, which also decried Christmas commercialism. And I laughed at that because this movie does the exact same thing. Uh, and again, Charlie Brown Christmas brought to you by Coca-Cola. And here we have, you know, it's the entire story of a department store. And yet they are decrying Christmas commercialism. I just think it's funny that that was not a new thing. Um, and, and Chris Kringle's decrying Christmas commercialism for the last 50 years. Yeah, that's he my says. point. Did this keep coming up when I was watching this was like, you know, he talks about the, the meaning of Christmas going away. And I was sort of like digging around a little bit because I was curious just how long you know how long is this this perception that we still hold today right that christmas has been diluted and has become about shopping and toys and all of this stuff and not about you know being kind to your neighbors and reaching out to people etc like how long has this been going on and the answer is according well, to this film anyways a century yeah. 20th century <laughs> yeah I don't know. Was it doing that during the Depression, do you think? I don't know. I mean, all I, all, I could just cite Santa Claus and saying that he's sad about the last 50 years. This is a delusional man, though. We don't know if he has a grasp of actual time <laughs> going by. I, I take away the exact opposite from it, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> Let me take a break to tell you about one of our sponsors. It's the Ministry of Supply. You know, dressed shirts should be better. They should work with your body and not against it. They should keep you comfortable. All day long. That is what drives Ministry of Supply. It is a menswear company that launched out of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology three years ago. That's right. They're using science and technology to make office-appropriate professional wear. It fits better. It has technical benefits. It will manage your body temperature to keep you from overheating. It will manage the moisture in the shirt. It will keep you dry. And it is resistant to wrinkles. So you can stay away from ironing. I hate ironing. It's the worst. The most tech-forward dress shirt they've got is called the Apollo, like the space capsule. And it's made with sweat-wicking fibers infused with NASA-engineered phase change material for temperature regulation. It is a high-tech shirt. It's got a light-knit construction, so it's breathable and four-way stretch for mobility. And the people at Ministry of Supply believe in continuous improvement. They're refining and improving their products through a human-centric iterative design process, so every iteration gets better. That's right. They are smart people at MIT coming up with very smart methods of making clothes. So shop them online, ministryofsupply.com. And if you use the code Let's Do a Draft, my favorite code ever, for 15% off your first purchase. That's right. If you use the code Let's Do a Draft, you will get 15% off. Or if you're in Boston, San Francisco, or New York, visit them in person at one of their stores. Mention the Incomparable Podcast and you will get 15% off your first purchase. Ministry of Supply, really cool science, technology, shirts. Ministry of Supply, menswear made smarter. 
So there's the trial, and basically it comes down to, hey, uh, John Payne, hotshot attorney and lady killer, do you think <laughs> that you can um, get someone to categorically prove that this crazy old man is Santa Claus? And John Payne's all, I, I don't know. And so it's not looking good for old Chris Kringle, mm. that, which is when we cut to the, the mail room at the U.S. Postal Service, where um, uh, basically uh, the workers of the world are, are uniting in favor of Santa Claus. They're getting these uh, letters that are addressed to Chris Kringle at the courthouse. And um, one of the postal workers says, hey, we get all these letters for, to Santa that we put in the dead letter office. Let's send them to the courthouse. So the trial is wrapping up. It's not looking good for Kris Kringle when suddenly, and if you've never seen Miracle on 34th Street, you've doubtlessly seen some sort of homage or mm -hmm. pay on to this scene where John Payne whips out the letter that's been sent to the courthouse and he says, here, here's a letter that someone sent to Santa. And the judge, I believe it's the judge, it might be, um, it might be District Attorney Miles Archer says, uh, oh, one letter, what does that prove? And it's, bring it in, boys! Yep. <laughs> Seven sacks of mail are brought here in on my desk Put and dumped. Yes, and here. dumped on Judge uh, Gene Lockhart's desk, uh, yep. which Whoa. proves because the federal government says that this guy is Santa and should get the mail. Therefore, Edmund Gwynn, aka Chris Kringle, aka Crazy Old Man, is in fact. Santa Santa Claus. So this movie is really about a strong federal government and how important <laughs> that is to our exactly. culture. Exactly. Now do you like it, Lisa? It's all it's about, about government intervention. communism and my commercialism. It, but, <laughs> but it's about the workers of the world saving the day. It's mm -hmm. about the proletariat. Come on. So really it's many things to all people is yep. what we're saying. <laughs> like it's, it's a guy in a red suit. In a black and white is it movie. Red? Yeah, is it red though? We don't even know. Mostly it's just a very funny movie. Which it's is very, that's right. It is. It's funny and it's charming. It holds up, too. It holds up. I mean, as a, you know, 68-year-old movie, uh, it's still pretty entertaining. <laughs> it, it, it really is very funny, very entertaining. It's a good family movie, I think. I would, There's I, actually uh -huh. more to the story. What? what? Because as Lisa mentioned... Earlier in the movie, the skeptical Natalie Wood character says, okay, if you're Santa, you'll bring me what I want for Christmas. Well, of course, little girl, what do you want? Property. Really? No, uh, Natalie <laughs> yes. Wood wants to... Just like Lucy. Nat yeah, Natalie Wood wants to move out um, out of Manhattan and into the suburbs. Um, and so she shows Santa a picture of a house. And Santa's all, Santa doesn't have enough for a down payment. Oh! And uh, uh, they the, that plot line is dropped and natalie wood sees santa get out well it's great that he's not crazy but he's also just a nice guy with a beard because he didn't get me what i wanted for christmas and uh they're driving home from the party on a route that santa gave them here drive this way santa does no routes by the way he is very yes. good at navigation he is the map quest of the 1940s <laughs> And um, uh, they, they drive by this house that is for sale that's surprisingly like the house that Natalie Wood was asking for. Oh, oh no! What? 
What? And they go, yep. And that is when John Payne like closes the deal with Marino Hera. It's <laughs> hey, let's buy this house. You can't say no. You'll disappoint your kid. Well, as as my girlfriend also pointed out, they've been dating since maybe Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's Christmas. Like it is a whirlwind that... romance. <laughs> John Payne, is, like you said, he is. Uh, he's. He's a slick operator. And you got to work fast in 1947. You don't know whether you're going to get the, the grip. And Yeah, uh, the Korean War is about to break out in three, four years. You might get sent off to Seoul. So maybe she'll be a widower. There that. is a bit of dialogue where he says, um, you know, let's go have dinner at the usual place. So there's this, you get the impression that this is actually, we just haven't seen it. There is a whirlwind romance going on behind the scenes because they give that piece of dialogue. We have, we see very little evidence of it, but it's very clearly happening. There is a scene where I, I felt like... Like, you know, in our conversation, akin to our conversation about the Empire Strikes Back, I turned <laughs> oh, to my no. I turned to my girlfriend and said, do you think they've had sex by this point? And she looks at them in the screen where he like she like puts a hand on his shoulder and she goes, yep. Yeah, well, she's a divorcee. I yeah. mean, she's known the touch of a man. She <laughs> she's already raised the eye of everything works. Sake, so he's a lawyer. What? Yeah. Um, uh, the, so I wanted to mention. Oh, well, sorry, Phil, you, you, you have uh, we keep interrupting your, your magical conclusion. <laughs> and exactly. Thank you, Jason, for recognizing my magic. Maybe I'm Santa Claus. Hmm? Maybe so. Tell well, what? let's prove it. A man needs well, to do something to keep warm. Though. So what happens is they're they're saying, "Well, isn't this a quinky dink that we wound up at this house?" And then they notice <gasps> by the fireplace, it's a cane just like the one that Chris Kringle uses. Oh no! Oh, it turns oh out my he's God. Santa. The killer leaves a signature. Yes, or he followed them there. <laughs> it, yes. it came from inside the house. He's waiting inside the closet, and the moment that the camera's cut, they are dead. Yep. Krampus this Friday. <laughs> Doesn't he hit Sawyer with an umbrella, though? I was confused. It is yes. an umbrella. I thought yeah, it was but he was he's seen with a cane. <laughs> he goes back and middle. forth between the cane and the umbrella. It, he hits him on the head, and it, it yeah. raises a bump, and... Just, oh, and, and the important have thing is that requests. Mr. Macy personally fires Granville Sawyer in the courtroom, <laughs> so yeah, don't be unemployed and unhappy at Christmas time. Everyone wins. In the early part of the film, he has the cane with him, but when he realizes that the umbrella is actually better for braining people mm, with, yeah, smart, he realizes he doesn't need the cane choose anymore, your weapon. So he discards it at the house. I do like uh, Mr. Gailey's final line, which is that maybe he didn't do such a wonderful such thing, a great thing after, after all. all. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. He's crazy, too. Although, as a kid, that line really confused me. It's, uh, you know, and then I guess really at the end, Maureen O'Hara believes in the possibility of magic again because... Well, she's already been made to believe. She signs the letter that Susie writes yes. and says, I, I believe in you, too. Yes. But this yep. is the final clincher. Like, maybe he was real all along. What do I care? I'm going to bed with John Payne tonight, mm -hmm. <laughs> she says. <laughs> I'd, I'd like so the moment that got me this time, and it uh, sometimes it gets me, and sometimes it doesn't. Doesn't, but this time it did. Is there's the moment where he's uh, so he's he's listening to all the uh, all the kids uh, who are coming into Macy's, and they sit on Santa's lap and they ask for it. And the fir first, there's the lady who's the most New York lady, Elmer Ritter. Where she's like, From I don't get it. I don't yep. get it. You it tell me to go to Macy's yeah. to Gimbel's, even this though is it's her Macy's. First role. I don't get it. She just keeps saying it. It's so New York. It's so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but the one that gets me is the the little the Dutch, Dutch girl. girl. The Dutch yeah. girl. Yeah. I mean, I mean, when you because when you think about it, it's a cute scene because he know he can he. She's like, I told her you don't speak Dutch, and he speaks Dutch, and they sing the Sinterklaas song, and it's all that. It's so great. But, but think about why she's a Dutch orphan in the 1940s. Her parents were killed, if not in the Holocaust, you know, in World War II, and she has been shipped over to the United States 
needs to find a new family. Yeah. And, and it is um, it gets a little dusty when I when, and she when that looks happens. So sad when so, they introduce her. Her eyes are so wide. She's and, just haunted. Oh, and then Santa Claus is like he's got the Dutch songs and all of that, and it's uh, and when he asks her in Dutch what she wants, she basically says, "I don't need anything because I have a family now." Ah, oh, mm. gets me every time. Ah, oh. maybe he really is Santa Claus. Guys. He is Santa Claus, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I would need it proved by a competent authority oh, like the federal government. Before let's go I'll to the judge. Anything. Let's take it to the judge. He's crazy too. <laughs> so, like as I as I mentioned earlier, this is my wife's favorite uh, Christmas movie, and and as I said before, you know she she can't explain it either. Um, she is, you know, she she's Jewish. She is not particularly a believer in any of the of in anything, and yet, so therefore, this movie should have no resonance at all. And yet, it is delightful. And she showed it to me for the first time, whatever, ten years ago. It and I agree completely. This is my favorite Christmas movie. I love its strange mixture of uh, like never too cynical, never too glassy eyed, uh, funny. Uh, people out for their own self-interest, but also learning some things along the way. Very New York in a in a '40s New York way that I kind of love. Uh, you know, I I, I think that uh, that Mr. Gailey, that John Payne does is great. I think just just spectacular in the way he, like you said, he's got uh, the game he is playing, the games he is playing, the legal games, the romancing of Maureen O'Hara, so good. And Edmund Gwen is. Fantastic. I mean, you if ever there was a man you would believe is Santa Claus, it is that man. So I love this movie. It is just, uh, there's something about it. it. It walks the line. It doesn't go too far uh, to, to you know, into areas that would make it, I think, not as pleasant a movie. Twist my arm and I guess I kind of like it. Aw. <laughs> Your heart grew one size. Yeah. <laughs> just the My one. heart's really about the same size. I agree with you completely. I, I'm not sure I'd put this in my uh, as my first favorite, but it's definitely in the top three. I've loved it since I was a kid. My dad introduced me to it. Um, and, and that was back before I got the the more adult humor that, uh, you know, the, the knowing <laughs> looks being exchanged between Fred Mertz and the judge and all the other stuff. It's just it's 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 really sweet and it's genuinely funny. And uh, I'm not bothered at all by the fact that a Christmas movie suggests that you should put faith in something that you can't necessarily see. So I think it's great. <laughs> yeah, I agree with Steve on that. I mean, I've seen this movie probably, I, I think saying 30 times is probably not uh, unreasonable given that I think I've watched this movie every Christmas for most of my life. Uh, it's one of my mom's favorite movies. I started watching it when when I was a kid. Um, and like Steve, I agree, you know, even as someone who maybe not, may not believe in, in Santa Claus, I do think the idea of, you know, there are intangible things to believe in is a worthwhile message, um, because there are concepts, at least if nothing else, as Mr. Day, as Mr. Gailey points out that are, that are worth something in the end. Um, it's stars, you know, great performances all around. It's, it's well-written. It's a funny movie. There are a lot of movies from this era and from earlier eras that don't hold up. Um, and this one really does. Uh, and it manages to be genuine, uh, I think, about a lot of things. So, um, And I, I never really took away any of the commercialism complaints about it, I guess. Maybe I sort of took, as a younger kid, I internalized the, the text more than the subtext. Uh, so, yeah, uh, this is definitely uh, in my top Christmas movies. I'd say it's probably, like, number two, like, right behind Die Hard. But, hey. Oh, no one's perfect. Yeah. Wow. See, see, very similar. It's easily in my top five. Similar. But it would probably be number five. Um, but yeah, I, I love I love the earnestness without being uh, square or, or overly corny. It's it's like it has a nice balance. 
between the humor and, and the just genuineness of it. For a dissenting opinion, we go to Judge Schmeiser. <laughs> <laughs> She's crazy, too. <laughs> Fred Mertz is waving a cigar at her right now. Mm-hmm. I, I, I only saw the movie for the first time last night. So, um, uh. yeah, well, you know how you're all, oh, my parents introduced me to this movie I associate with Christmas. Uh, everyone is saying that it's very sweet. And I like thinking about the movies that make up your internal holiday traditions. I come from a family where our family Christmas movie was The Lion in Winter. So I'm um, <laughs> to tell you why we do not watch Mir- why I did not get around to Miracle on 34th Street until I had to do a podcast about it. I will say that my my grandparents who we lived with when I was a child and my mother hated this movie. So I didn't see it until I was grown up either. There's a lot of terrible people out there, David. That's right. <laughs> some of the worst are commercial people. A lot of isms. Uh, the worst. No, I um like I said, I found the movie to be fascinating because I feel like it's sort of a snapshot that anticipates a lot of the cultural currents of the 1950s that oh, yeah. you know, reverberated down. Um, it's a 50s movie. It is from it 1947. Is. Well, that's totally. the thing: is yeah. it basically is it it basically encapsulates the post war ethos and how people are beginning to move on with their lives after the war, and. I find that kind of transitional period really fascinating. So when I was watching the movie and thinking about how this movie was kind of capturing a society in flux where people were still figuring, figuring out their roles once they returned to the States, like that that's what made the movie interesting to me. And I like all the period details because I'm a sucker for vintage uh, de- decor. And Natalie Wood has one of the best dirty looks in the business. <laughs> I'm looking forward to showing this to Trixie. Um you know, it'll be interesting to see what her reaction is to it. We're another family that doesn't talk about Santa. I'm like, she'll bring it home and say Santa the Santa. And that. We're like, hmm, interesting belief system you've uh-huh. got there. But we don't push it. We don't use it as, like, sometimes I regret the decision because we can't use him as a threat. But <laughs> <laughs> that's what he's there for. Yep. Yeah. But other than that, you know, we don't push it. And um, it'll be interesting to see what her take is when, you know, oh, my God, there's a child who doesn't share this worldview. You know, it's 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 pleasant enough. It's not one of my least favorite Christmas movies. So, I, in in all seriousness, I would say put that on the video blur. I, I would uh, I, I would say give it a give it a give another look because I think there are a lot of levels to this film, and and that if if what you come away with is about the commercialism of it, I mean, I think the point of the film is actually to the the people who are rising above the commercialism. It yeah. is set at right. Macy's, so yes, that's true. But that's yeah. Chris's whole yeah. point is you know he he's. He's doing things like making that little Dutch girl happy, and uh, you know that it's more important things than the commercialism, which is why he sends people to Gimbals. I mean, it, it happens that forms a perfect synergy with Macy wanting to get more people into his store, but yeah. that's not the whole reason why he did it. But right. still, you you got to move product, am I right, fellas? I I am impressed with how competent they allow Doris Walker to be as the single female divorcee. Mm-hmm. She's she's doing it for herself. I mean, she's risen up high in the in the chain at Macy's. She's in charge of the whole parade. Yeah. Well, to Lisa, Lisa's point, we're not that far removed from uh, an era World when, War Two. Uh, World War Two, when women were quite commonly in the workplace because no one else was was around so right. this would not have been i i don't think shocking except if you're in the the, the catholic defense league or whatever the hell right. it was that protested mm-hmm. the movie well i'm heartened that they stuck with it for at least a couple of years after yeah. the war until until eisenhower came around and set us all straight she does put clowns on the pirate float in the opening scene which i find somewhat worrisome <laughs> women am i right yeah. yeah and for as confident as she is she's concerned about uh how chris 
has latent maniacal tendencies, but she doesn't seem to have a problem with letting him tuck her daughter into bed, which I find a little strange. But otherwise, very competent. Well, you know, he went to those busy single working mothers need to need to utilize as much second party help as they can. Mm. Hey, man, you got Santa Claus to put your kid to bed. You make use of that. Exactly. I think we would be remiss if we did not mention the greatest uh, newspaper headline of all time. Oh, yes. Uh. Yes, please. Chris Kringle crazy. Court case coming. Calamity, cry kitties. All case. All case. All case. All case. Yes. <laughs> also, I, I do like at some point when they uh, when when um, Charlie, the political fixer, is telling the judge, you know, why you shouldn't say there's no Santa Claus. And he mentions the kids reading the newspaper, which I kind of liked was an interesting. Point. I was like, well, I, yeah, I, I guess the, the kids probably were reading the newspapers at that <laughs> point. <laughs> sure. So. Yeah, they yeah they they had to get informed somehow. There was no Twitter for them. Like I said, a, a very nice moment where uh, where he sees that the the case has gotten put up on the on the front page, and he's like, "Oh, this is good. It's like this is good for me. It's good for my business. It's good that we're getting the publicity." So the newspaper is a big part of that too. And yes, uh, in addition to the the calamity cry kitties, I love the uh, the line early on about the spurious Santa Clauses. That's mm-hmm. just fantastic. Substituting for spurious Santa Clauses. Mm. I also never noticed until this viewing that the employee elevator at Macy's is far too small for the size of that building, apparently. Because <laughs> she and Shellhammer, uh, Doris Walker and Cheryl, Shellhammer, have to uh, wedge themselves out from behind about 60 people in order to get to the meeting with Macy. All right, let me tell you about a sponsor on The Incomparable. This is a, this is a good one. It's a Kickstarter project from Max Temkin, co-creator of Cards Against Humanity. It's got an interesting name. Are you ready? Here it is. It's Secret Hitler. That's right. Now, you may be saying to yourself, why would you put Hitler in the name of a product? But you've got to hear what this product is, and uh, it'll make sense. And I also subscribe to the uh, Mel Brooks line of thought, which is the more things we can say to demean or mock Hitler, the better. Anyway, uh, Secret Hitler is a game. It's a, uh, inspired by classic party games like Mafia or Werewolf or The Resistance. If you know those, it introduces some new mechanics to the genre. Um, and, and anyway, if you're familiar with any of those sort of social deduction games, you will get a little bit about what Secret Hitler is all about. Uh, the liberal team is trying to keep control of the government. This is definitely inspired by the rise of the Nazis in world before World War II. Um, and they are a majority group, right? But they have distrust and they need to learn to work together to overcome fascism and assassinate Hitler before he can take over the government. So it's super intense, but it's also really interesting in how it tries to take a, a page out of history and understand the dynamics that led to the rise of somebody who did not have the support of the majority, uh, but that person ended up taking control of the government. So it is a, a little bit of history and a little bit of social commentary, and also it falls into this social deduction category. If you've ever played Werewolf, you know what I'm talking about. Very fun and very cool. It's on Kickstarter now. It's already funded. 3,500 people have already backed it. So when you back it on Kickstarter, which you can do through December 23rd, you're going to get the game. You're going to get the game. And you can learn a lot more about it, see it in action, watch the videos, 
at secrethitler.com. That's where you need to go, secrethitler.com. Now, Max Temkin, uh, who created uh, co-created Cards Against Humanity, smart guy, funny guy. This is a great idea for a game. He's done some other game design uh, in the last few years that I've really enjoyed. I, I encourage you to check it out, especially if you played any of those social deduction games like Mafia or Werewolf. Uh, I think you will find Secret Hitler a really intriguing spin on the concept. So go to secrethitler.com. And thanks to Max and everybody else behind secrethitler.com for sponsoring The Incomparable. And by the way, Phil was the secret Hitler all along. I love the drunken Mrs. Shellhammer, by the way. That is like oh, one of my... Yes. I, I could not Hello. stop. Hello! <laughs> oh, darling, how silly of me. And she's just laughing. I made them triple strength. A movie in which the drunken Santa Claus from the first scene meets drunken Mrs. Shellhammer <laughs> would be that's my a, that's favorite a romance. Christmas movie. They just drink and laugh together. All made day. the martinis triple strength, and she feels wonderful. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Miracle that on just 35th tells you Street. So much about their marriage, too. <laughs> well, their kid is away at college. <laughs> yes, this is a, they're, they're they're, empty there's no empty nest syndrome yeah. for them at all, whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, they're having martinis for dinner every night. Yeah. How silly of me. Mom, wow. Dad, I'm home from college. I'm starved. We have a jar of cocktail olives and a few pickled yep. onions left, and that is it. <laughs> in another in another world, they are Nick and Nora Charles. Yeah, we haven't eaten since 1942. Is it? I do. I do enjoy the uh, just every time. I love that she gets the which end the telephone is wrong. Yes. That's just yeah. the best. Yep, it's the best. How silly of me! No. Oh. <laughs> Uh, and there's no, no there is no reason that that's in that movie. There's no reason it's there other than it's zany. Hey, speaking of loveless marriages, let's talk about The Lion in Winter. <laughs> All righty. Must we? Let's do it. All right. All right. So, um... We start with theme music straight out of an Omen film. You know, as I, as I was watching it, I said, there there are going to be like three panels that tap out just because of the opening credits. Because, Lisa, would you care to imitate the opening uh, music? I hate to put you on the spot, but you do you a very good job of this. spot, no. It's... I, 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 my dad used to run around the house singing raging raging latissimus dorsi <laughs> and that was pretty much what we sang along to the credits when we watched it every year at christmas as a cherished family tradition the first time i watched it it took me like three tries to realize it was a dies irae from a catholic mass and i was like oh okay they're not enunciating no well. they are not so the year 1183 i i think yes um and the the scene england henry the 2nd is the king and he is he is what you might call a lion in winter because he's a little bit old he needs to find an heir because his son henry you know died because he was trying to overthrow his father i think additionally right? it is yeah. winter yes. that this film is set in so it is exactly. literally winter it's, yeah. It's, it's yeah it's christmas christmas eve but it is not it is not england it is not set in england it's set in no, france it's france yeah technically speaking henry the second was the king of half of france at this point yes and that's mm -hmm. where the movie so, takes place yeah. they ship they ship Catherine hepburn in from london or yeah yeah where she's locked up yeah. um and kept up there the thing you, that you have to understand about henry the henry the second eleanor is they're basically one of history's fun couples um there are there are these there are couples in history who significantly shape culture and, and uh statecraft like uh, the emperor justinian and his wife um theodora or um, Napoleon and Josephine, and Henry and Eleanor. And um, this movie is, is basically about uh, 
they just can't quit each other. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and they get to, and it's, it's about a contentious family Christmas. <laughs> and, yes. Um, what could, what could be more Christmassy than getting together, bringing the family from the far flung corners of your kingdom and no one gets along and argues all the time <laughs> and tries to kill each other with swords. Well, it does go on about, you know, the tendency to revert to your childhood roles in this case. Um, Technically speaking, both Richard and John shouldn't have even been facing the succession thing. But again, Henry the Younger died when he was waging war against his dad. And Henry II was so capable of holding a grudge that when Henry the Younger came to, like, Henry the Younger sent emissaries to Henry with two deathbed requests. And the first one was, I'd like to see you before I die, father. And the answer to that was, no. And then the second request was, would you please free my mother? Um, because by this point, like, Henry's sons were beginning to, like, overthrow him as, like, a hobby. Um Please, please free my mother from prison. And the answer to that was also a flat no. Like Henry II is the kind of guy who who really enjoys disappointing his children when they've disappointed him. <laughs> so, well, it's it's very much a, a the the who's afraid of Virginia Woolf kind of paradigm. Yeah. It's it's mm-hmm. George and Martha, except they're both more fun and more uh, deadly yeah. and bloodthirsty. Now, the reason this is a classic Christmas movie in our house is again, my dad really really enjoyed movies with a lot of uh, uh, back and forth interplay, you know, and he also enjoyed plays like that, too. And indeed, this was a play before it was a movie. Yeah, you'd never know it. Yeah, as anyone who watches it will huh? be able to tell. How could you tell this was a play? I mean, there's a wide establishing shot, then there's people yapping in a room, then there's a wide establishing yeah. shot, then there's people yapping e- in a room. Each shot goes on for several minutes, yeah. There's a shot with it- all of them lined up talking. It follows the same basic rhythm as the Star Wars prequels, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Except it's it's more uh, popcorn movie than the Misa the King. <laughs> you poodoo. <laughs> I have to separate out my deep sentimental fondness and my love for this against the fact that visually it is totally not a stunner. Like the one thing I do appreciate about it visually is it points out that it really is not cool or fun or beautiful to be living in an era where there's no indoor heat or sanitation or, you know, <laughs> brightly colored clothing or anything like that. So, so I appreciate he is wandering the, around he is the, the king yeah. and he dresses like a hobo. Well, I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate that they don't glamorize it and that they don't make it look like it's, you know, all silks and linens and and jewels all the time. It's basically a bunch of super cold people in a giant smoky stone structure trying not to choke and try not to get killed by each other at the same time. I love the play and I really like the movie, but I love the play. And, and so I don't, I don't have the illusion that this is the greatest movie on earth. It is too long. James Goldman adapted his own script and, and opening it out, doesn't do it any favors when so much of it is still closed in. Although Anthony Hopkins, I think um, there's just that moment where he says to his father, you never called. I would have come, but you never called. Like uh, the first time I saw that, I kind of stopped stock still because that, 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 you know, hit at the heart because it was just so raw. Yes. And so visceral. So it's, it's interesting to watch his performance. And, you know, I like that the actors um, who play Jeffrey and John have evidently gone on to have long and distinguished British careers, whatever. But it's really none of those actors can keep up with Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn. Oh, no. So, so no. we're about 10 minutes into this and I haven't actually discussed the plot, which I think is telling because because plot is not actually central to this movie. Um, not really. No, I, I, I can give I can do the plot in about 20 seconds. Yeah. Uh, Peter O'Toole needs to find an heir to the throne. They're going to have a Christmas court where the King of France, who's played by Timothy Dalton in one of his his is first, his if first not the movie. first 
movie yeah. um, mm-hmm. is, is coming over to negotiate a peace treaty. Um, so he decides to uh, get uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine out of the deep freeze, uh, brings her in, brings in his three sons, all of whom to varying degrees hate him. And then the rest of the movie is him fighting with Ele- uh, Eleanor and him fighting with his sons as we try and determine who the heir is. But really, that's not the important part. The important part is the interactions between Henry and Eleanor. That's the mm-hmm. entire um, uh, fulcrum on which the movie pivots. And for my, just to uh, reveal my hand. I absolutely love the scenes between uh, uh, Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn. I think those make the movie alone worth watching. I'm less inclined any time that the the three sons are on the screen. And when it's there's no Peter O'Toole or no Catherine Hepburn, go fix yourself a drink. That's right. It's, oh. it's not much of a movie then. It's yeah. It's very slow. It's very pokey. And it's stagey as hell. And, oh God! And, yeah, and not in not in that rope way where no, we all no, no. rope is stagey as hell. But rope mm-hmm. actually it works as a stagey movie. As theater boy, it it hurts <laughs> to watch this sometimes because of that is your secret how, identity. That is at <laughs> night theater boy um, robes the streets looking for plays. <laughs> Lights, please. And uh, yeah, it's it's just so aggressively not filmic in a lot of scenes. And I mean, especially the the wedding sequence where they're all lined up in a row, and the camera doesn't even move. It's like, no. oh my god, do no, something! No, that is that is weird, and um, it's it's just painful. But that I do said it does let you concentrate in the language. That's true. I yeah. do love Hopkins, and I love watching him, and especially in the scene with with just him and Dalton mm-hmm. when he when he thinks they're alone in in Dalton's bedchamber, where he is again. It's a very raw emotion for him. Where, where he's he's trying to not be vulnerable and and still say did did you love me you know mm-hmm. and that is just devastating and and so it's fun to watch that of the three sons I think John Castle as Prince Jeffrey does the best job because he yeah. he is the pissiest so that is yes. near and dear to my heart I think yes. Prince John looks like Bob Geldof at <laughs> well, fifty <laughs> Nigel Terry who sure. plays Prince John he is he is given no favors because it's basically it seems like his direction is be as wormy as possible <laughs> I was just gonna say wormy yeah be as exactly. wormy and unpleasant and just every time the camera is on him I cringe and walk like you've just weed your tights we want we want viewers to when they when they look at you think what is wrong with that guy yeah. Can you do that for us? Yes. <laughs> because yes. at one point, uh, Peter O'Toole promises his mistress to um, Prince John. He um, has spots. And, and, yeah. and basically, you go, oh, that poor mistress. Mm. Oh, man. Mm. What yeah. a when, terrible... He's pimply well, and he smells like a stockyard or something. Speaking, right? yeah. She was supposed to go to one of the brothers anyway because she came with the Vexen. That's right. And they were more interested in holding on to the Vexen for strategic purposes. So, And if she doesn't marry one of them... The they, have to return to return the, back. they have to return the dowry, yeah. I mean, I think this makes... The, I think The Line of Winter makes a really good holiday movie, mostly because um, if you've ever had a holiday family where somebody somewhere is stirring up the, 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 the poop for no good reason, or yeah. people come yeah. back and automatically revert to roles they last held in the 1980s or 1990s, like, watching this can be weirdly cathartic. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I'm super interested in hearing why people hated it. Well, that's Jason Snell's music. Exactly. My God, my God, that's Jason. It, it, it's long. The camera is static. It's not a holiday movie. It's it's a that's a sham to get us to watch a movie that's not actually about the holidays. <laughs> no, it's it is a holiday. Holiday. <laughs> no, on that I will fight it's you. It's about family discord oh, okay, yeah, okay, and giving. Yes, 
Yes, it, it's about family. If you happen to be the king of freaking England and your children are, or, or we'll put it this way, if you really want to strain the metaphor, yes, it is. It's about a family that hates each other, but they're all tied together and they're all going to go down together, or at least some of them will be stabbed by the, uh, by the, uh, the, 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 the strong men who are brought in the middle of the night on, uh, as it's just very early Christmas morning. You know, I found, I found it. It's very talky. Some of the dialogue is very good. Um, it goes on forever. It's completely static. It's a very long film. Some of the performances are good. Some of the performances are not good. And um, I, after about an hour, I really wanted to turn it off. So there you go. I, I And I watched the whole thing, but I found it unpleasant. Uh, it's smart in parts. There are some good performances. Um, and uh, I found maybe there was 30 minutes that I appreciated in the two hours and 15, maybe? Oh. Oh my yeah. gosh, you so you know, guy. I I, uh, I don't like this movie. I uh, thought it was crappy. I could I could totally cut it down by at least forty five minutes, even even from some of the good scenes, because because yeah, it's too long. Yeah, I could see liking this movie a lot more after seeing it three or four times, where I actually knew what the hell they were saying and uh, and could actually appreciate the dialogue I agree. because mm-hmm. I could understand yeah. half of it. But I would not watch this a second time because I too was <laughs> frankly just kind of bored by it. The, I, I, I mean, will I would say the density of it was overwhelming on one level and also made me realize there's a probably a lot of very good material here but i cannot take all of this in at once it's like i I just couldn't sit there Mm -hmm. and take it all in so it's one of those things like should i watch this movie in 10 minute installments because i would probably (laughs) appreciate it a lot more if i just focused on it for 10 minutes and then walked away but well the accents don't help either no the accents are also all over the place too that's another thing about the play versus the movie Whereas, you know, again, because he opens it out, you have these long, you know, establishing shots and, you know, so look, we're on location. There's a look, beach there's a in Wales. Yeah. And, and there are dogs. There are dogs in the film. <laughs> there are dogs. This is great. There yeah. weren't dogs on the stage. Come on. And but because the, the play has to move and it, it doesn't have time for location shots. It doesn't have time for, you know, walking in the long procession with the dogs. Or it's Doug a much, making mold wine. Yeah. yeah, it is a much tighter <laughs> You know, and and it it allows you to focus on the language and it tells the it it gives you all the setup for everything much quicker and much sharper so that you're not having to wait 30 minutes for for Catherine Hepburn to show up. She's in like the second scene. Theater is static because it's on a stage and yeah, they can move things around on the stage, but you sit in your seat and you are the director essentially. And and the and the staging can draw your attention where it needs to be. And 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 I feel like uh, I felt abandoned in the way this movie is shot. That that it's not shot like one shot of just a stage, right? There are these long single shots, but you you feel have those moments where you're like, wow, I'd almost rather you be telling me where to look now, but instead I felt just kind of completely abandoned. And in theater, I'm in the mode where I'm like, okay. I'm going to be surveying the scene and looking around and working with the actors and the director. They're going to be trying to draw my attention to places. And whereas in film, it was like, yeah, we're, we're not going to bother. Good luck. And it, it, it really, uh, yeah, turned me off on that too, which yeah, the direction here reminds me a little bit of 1776, which also, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they basically just picked it up from the stage and dropped it down yeah. and said, okay, we're going to set the camera over here. And maybe once in a while, we'll have one of those, uh, uh yearbook photo shots, but <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, you know, we're just, we're tall founding is- Fathers in the back, short founding fathers in the front. <laughs> this is the play, and it looks like a play, and that's about all the effort we're going to put into it. And, but but 1776 had the benefit of being uh, somewhat likable. Which it's fun, yeah. To me, this did not. And and so much of the direction in this, I mean, just in terms of the acting direction, is very much, 
oh, play it like you're on the stage. So it's a lot louder, and, and everyone is trying to oh, raise their voices to match match Shouty O'Toole. And, <laughs> and again, I come from a family with Shouty people in it, so having O'Toole shout was no big deal because yeah. that was actually par for the course at a lot of family gatherings growing up. But Phil pointed it out when we were doing the rewatch, and I was like, oh my god, he really does shout a lot. Yeah, and, and it's so much of it. I mean, again, I really like O'Toole generally, but he there are a couple of points where he goes way overboard. And and like when when she's taunting him in the bed. I can feel it. I can feel it. His arms, there are scars. Yeah. And he just suddenly goes <laughs> and just goes hunching off. And it's like yeah, Whoa, it's... dial it down. He starts at ten and just <laughs> And mm-hmm. dial it up going. to twenty. Yes. In that Peter O'Toole way where you just keep going like this. Yeah, I recognize there are great performances in this. Catherine Hepburn is fantastic. She is. Um, yes. Yep. Individual lines, I think, are fantastically funny. I I, oh, I recognize God, yeah. that there's some great back and forth here, some very nice cutting lines. Mm-hmm. And in the end, I just didn't give a damn because these are all terrible people and <laughs> yes. I don't like any of them. I mean, they're all bastards. I have no rooting interest. And in the end, my rooting interest was, I hope this ends like a Shakespeare tragedy. Everybody is dead. And everyone's lying in a puddle of blood on the floor. Except maybe Timothy Dalton, who's A lot of them do. Jeffrey ends up getting killed in a horseback riding accident. Um, But but I want to see it. (laughs) You want to see that montage. (laughs) Or it's like the end of Animal House (laughs) where the little credits. Yeah. Senator Senator Blutarski and wife. Sir Niedermeyer, dead. Yeah. No, the thing I I never understood, the thing that... Um, vexes me to this day is Prince Jeffrey is obviously the one out of the three of them with the best impulse control and the most statesmancraft-like mind, and he is persistently passed over by both parents. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. It's like they just straight-up hated him from birth for they some do. reason. Because he's a dick. The nice thing to know about this is in real life, Prince Jeffrey took his magnificent brain and hired himself out to the French and um, worked actively against his father's interest for the rest of his short life until he was kicked in a horseback riding accident. Yeah, Henry actually outlived I mean, him. So yeah, he died before much the rest of them. I do like yeah. how all the characters call, um, all, the, all the sons call uh, Catherine Hepburn mummy. Mummy. Yes. <laughs> well, mummy. Oh, I thought that was a directorial choice that she was actually a mummy. She was wrapped up quite a bit. Lots of time to have dreams about things like that, Dan. Good. Lots of times. This is the second time I've seen this movie, by the way. I, I so what I appreciate about the about this movie is that it is about um, Henry failing to accept his own mora- mortality. Right? Mm-hmm. He he tries to control what happens after he's gone, and he can't. He just he can't do it. And there there is a great moment where he is talking to Catherine Hepburn about how he's going to get a uh, an annulment and he's going to marry Alice or Alice or whatever oh, her name is. Alice. And, and, and they're going to have babies. And and she's just sitting there like she she's like wait for it. He's going to figure this out. You know, let's walk you through what's going to happen. Is that your how babies your babies are going to get killed by your grown sons? And the the great line is you want to have more sons you have plenty of sons already yes, just sons it's that's great it, it's great because he he is completely misguided and trying as he is aging to put off death and control his family from beyond the grave and it's not going to happen and that that i really appreciate well, it. And, and that he's also got he's not focused on I, I think one of the things i sort of enjoy about him as a character is that he's not purely focused on the glory of being 
king, right? He is he, a lot of what he talks about <laughs> enthusiastically <laughs> is well, a lot of what he talks about enthusiastically is like you know justice, laws, that kind of stuff, right? He's trying to maintain a peace. He's trying to maintain stability, right? Like he this built English an empire law. And, and he laid down the foundation for English common yeah, law. Exactly. He's one of the greatest kings they've ever had. And so the point, but it's not just I'm trying to ensure sort of my legacy. It's like I'm trying to ensure the stability and like prosperity of my country, of all that I've mm. done to, you know, establish all of these various, you know, laws and things like that. And so I think that, you know, he has a, I think he has a noble intention uh, unfortunately, he's not very good at exercising that. Yeah. Well, it's also his pride getting in the way because he, he does have that vision. And, and clearly, Richard or Jeffrey would be a better ruler, but he wants John because Eleanor wants Richard. And it's sort of like, well, I'm going to pick the one I want. I'm sorry. I'm going to pick the one I want. And, um, <laughs> you know, yeah, thank the, you. I've, I've practiced. Well, one of the things that I, that this movie could have benefited from... Um, and that the play alludes to from time to time to time is that Eleanor and Henry had a tremendous falling out when um, Eleanor, when, no, Eleanor when, when Henry took a mistress and he didn't just take uh, Rosamund Clifford and he didn't just take because he had lots and lots of women, but she was his mistress for 11 years, which is serious tenure, like in terms of kingly mistresses. And he made yeah, the mistake you can't get of, fired from that. Well, he made the mistake of moving her into Eleanor's apartments and telling Eleanor to stay in the country. And um, given who Eleanor of Aquitaine was, she was like, she's like, I really don't give a hoot who you sleep with. What I give a hoot about is who you let into statecraft, because that's my that's my jam. And that was when she was like, all right, children, let's go to war against your father. And so this whole rift comes from Henry not recognizing that Eleanor had always seen herself as and equal in terms of power, statecraft, and most importantly, war. Like, this is a dude who forgot that she divorced her first husband because he was insufficiently warmongering. Like, well, he, she did. Yeah, no, I know, I know. Yeah, because it comes down to the crusade. She wanted to legitimately, like, terrorize and conquer most of the land leading to Jerusalem. And her husband's like, no, no, we're, we're here to legitimately convert people. And she's like, land! And he's like, annulment. So <laughs> That's all interesting stuff. It's a pity none of it was in the movie that we yeah, watched. Yeah, I, I was yeah. about to say, it's, I think the central yeah. flaw of this movie is that everything Lisa has said is interesting and not in the movie. Yeah, like, and, and this is the thing is I think the movie would have benefited a little bit more if you had all that subtext and shading and you understood that Eleanor is not merely being uppity or a scorned wife, Eleanor is a legitimate monarch, and Henry made a big tactical error and has been paying the price ever since. Yeah, I was a little irritated that I had to spend 20 minutes on Wikipedia before yeah. I could actually watch this <laughs> well, film, just yeah. so I knew what the hell these people it's were. It's played very clearly from the top when, when in the first scene, Peter O'Toole makes a reference to King Lear. You know, this is a this is a family drama. It is not, not actually really about history at all. I mean, the fact that these people share circumstances and character and, and names with historical figures is kind of passing at best. I don't know. I, I think what this actually at the end of this, there is a uh, there's a coming to peace between Henry and Eleanor. A little bit. You, well, you, you get the feeling that's been a game the whole time. Yeah, I feel like this is their regular Christmas Eve thing. You know, they yeah. do this every it's, year. It's foreplay, guys. See you again next Christmas. I think what this movie shows you is at the beginning of it, Henry's like, yeah, whatever, this is statecraft. This is Eleanor. Ugh, God. And over the course of the movie, as they play chess with their children and with his mistress, um, 
by the end of it, they've basically rediscovered why they love each other. But circumstances in history as such where it, they're it both dictates. secretly super crazy about each other, but they can't back down. And to me, that's the and that's to true. me that's the most that's interesting true. thing about it is by the end of it, you can see that they're never going to let each other go. And they, they and they're resigned to it. And it's a really happy sort of resignation because it's like, if I have nothing else in this world, I have been the object of passion and intense energy from this person who is like this crazy conquering genius, you know, and it, it, it gratifies their egos and it, it feeds something in them. Yeah, the next best thing to having a spouse is having a nemesis. Whereas I didn't care either way because they're both bastards. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the one thing I do like in this is how the, there is that. Uh, realization that people did not live very long no. in this period. You know, he has the line, I'm 50 now. Good God, I'm the oldest man I'm I know. 50. I've got 10 years on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I can kick and I can rule France. Mm, I, fe I feel like someone should do a podcast so so solely as Screaming Peter O'Toole. <laughs> on it. Oh, yeah. no. Mm -hmm. Podcast with O'Toole, Burton, and Richard Harris. I, so, <laughs> so I, I, while I appreciate the theatricality of that scene where um, Catherine Hepburn and Peter O'Toole are talking and it goes from them being really hateful to each other to the tender moment where they exchange a kiss to them being totally hateful to each other again, um, I, I appreciate the structure of it and the theatricality of it like i said and the performances of it at the same time as steve said um uh, i i didn't really appreciate it in terms of uh anything res remotely resembling what human beings would actually do and <laughs> yeah. uh so i just was like yeah whatever and again i just had a whole lot of boy yeah it must be really tough to be the king of uh many countries yeah that's a that's a hard life you got there so i i don't know i i just <laughs> I, I i never felt a connection with these characters i thought it was a lot of clever wordplay by a writer i felt like i was watching yes. a writer write mm. uh dialogue yes. that was being acted by good actors and that mm -hmm. was it in the end, there was a scene with beds and tapestries, and many things got said, and that was yes. pretty much all I got out of it. <laughs> That's what tapestries are for, Steve. Yep. It's hiding it. Yes, everyone was hiding in a tapestry. It was the original, let's make a deal. What's behind tapestry number one? It's your son. Oh, oh it's King John. Tapestry number two, also your son. Also tapestry your number three, son. still your son. But part of the problem for me... I don't. I don't necessarily have a problem seeing people be awful to each other on screen. Um, <laughs> what bothered me a little bit was that uh, it just seemed like what was the, all the back and forth was like mind game after mind game, and yes. it would turn one way and then the other and then the other. And I never had a clue which one of those was the actual point of view or the actual well, whatever yeah. it was that the character was trying to get at. So. It, it was it was not only hard to follow, but it was hard to care because it just seemed like they were screwing with each other for no reason. Mm. Yes. I think that's called family, Steve. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty much it is that for, for Henry and Eleanor. Um, sometimes that well, actually, in many cases, there was a point like there's a great scene where Henry basically tells um, Philip. You've told me everything, and I've told you nothing. This is how it's done. Yeah. But I, I think when it comes to Henry and Eleanor, screwing with the other person is the point. Like if they, if they get anything out of it, that's a bonus. But 
for all of these people, it was just, I'm going to score points because I can, because I can. It's like when you're a kid in the backseat of the car and you, you know, you, you, you try to irritate your brother as much as possible just to see if what you can get away with. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Don't, I don't, I don't find that entertaining at all. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> as a viewer, you know, I, 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 I could see that them attacking each other in various ways. I wanted to know which one was the real character. Mm. You know, right. do they really, is this tender moment the real Eleanor and Henry or mm-hmm. is that just another step on their pathway of, you know, their weird little attacking? game? That yeah. that Henry scene with the uh, the Henry scene with Philip actually come to think of it is a little bit like the Wallace Shawn scene from Princess Bride. You've told me everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's sad, but I think my favorite scene in uh, wide shots of people in livestock walking in lines, the movie is <laughs> the <original> uh, title, <laughs> yes. is probably the fight between the two guards down in the, the yeah. bowels of the castle. Yeah, I was thinking about that one. It's yeah. pretty brutal. You always see these these wonderfully choreographed fast action. Uh, fights between guys in chain mail and this is probably a heck of a lot more like it actually would yeah. go down yeah. these guys just sort of stumbling around and feebly attempting to jab each other drop your sword and then stab I've got a in knife. the neck with your dagger there are so many Everybody's scenes got a knife. where there's like a quick cut from close-up to close-up where they don't match and you're trying oh, to yeah. figure out when did they move when did they, how did they sit they down change? yeah how did their faces change expression that fast and and some of the expressions are are like silent movie mugging to the, the back of the theater. It's like, what are you doing, man? And I say this with a movie that I kind of like, but man, oh, that's painful. I, I would love to know more about the direction. I feel like, just pretend it's a play. And they're like, oh, okay, well, we will do that. Please, so. we know those, not like your newfangled moving pictures. <laughs> that's the weird thing about this is it's not like movies were a really new medium at this point. No, because Lisa and I once watched The, the Lives of Henry VIII, Oh. which was a really early movie that kind of defined the direction British cinema took. With and Elsa it, Lancaster. It, Elsa Lancaster and Charles Lawton. Oh. And and you you want to talk about movies where they're just trying to figure out how movies work. That is that, is that <laughs> movie. Yeah. But, uh, and it is so far advanced over The Lion in Winter in terms <laughs> of how to compose a shot and how to frame a narrative and tell a story on film. And it's like he's he was an editor, the director. Anthony yeah, he's a really great Martin. editor too. He, did, he, he edited Doctor Strangelove and the Spy and who came in from the Cold. Do you think there's the possibility that the actors just ran roughshod over him? Because I think yeah, there's very much so. that possibility. Because yeah. apparently, you don't uh, let Peter O'Toole shout that much if you're a sane person. Catherine oh. Hepburn apparently <laughs> spent most of her time on the set admonishing Peter O'Toole and Anthony Hopkins <laughs> for showing up half in the bag. That's that's <laughs> and it funny. shows. That's yeah. very funny. I'm not. Drunk, you're drunk. <laughs> was this uh, was this Anthony Hopkins' first role? It was, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. his first That's film a, role. A little brash, and it showing shows. up loaded. It shows. No, he he spent most of the. It wasn't up until, until about, about the, the 70s, 70s that he got got sober. Yeah. Phil, what else should we talk about about the line in winter? I think, have we I think we've it? Ta- talked it out. I I think I think we are pretty much. Um, Lisa loves the movie. Mm-hmm. David and I kind of like it like I, i'm with you it. guys i'm in, I, i'm in the middle I love and, the play. And, and 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 Moran likes bits of it and um uh you and, and steve uh hate it with the fire of a thousand suns <laughs> and that's and that's fair we're like a family squabbling at christmas <laughs> oh, you turn i am in the wine cellar right now you stink you're a stinker <laughs> i i honestly felt like i was um that it was a setup 
because I I was not aware exactly of how little this had to do with anything re- regarding the holidays, and so part of my reaction to it was like, okay, uh, I I've been had by Philip Michaels. <laughs> that's just how that how it's, that's how it's gonna be. But uh, you've been yes, had I, twice. I believe this is in the holiday vault too. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Yeah, David, well, if we make a deal for Aquatoon, we can overthrow Jason as the host of this podcast. Ooh, at this point, I think he would give it over. All we'd have to do <laughs> well, is ask. I would have you all stabbed in your sleep. <laughs> no, you just throw us in the dungeon. You could have just stabbed us in your sleep. It would have been faster. I'm vilifying you, for God's sakes. Pay attention! Excuse me, I've got to go back up onto the roof of the castle and uh, shout and jump around. You know that, and I know that, and he knows that we know that. We're a very knowledgeable podcast. And then and then curl up into a fetal ball while the horns kick in. I'll collapse into a heap, and then the camera will pan out. Oh, Jason, your scorn is both devastating and hilarious. Look, look, I'm really on a parapet! Did he die? I, I, was, I, thought, I was worried that this is a strange way for the movie the rest? to resolve that Pierre O'Toole just goes on the roof, goes mad, and dies. And then that's... That's the end. And then later I thought he was going to die again, and he didn't die then either. Anyway, yeah, it's, uh, oh well, it's, it's like I said, like I said earlier, I feel like, um, the dialogue is, is to be appreciated and that if I had watched it in short bits, but the way the, the film makes no effort to drag a viewer along with it because it is poorly directed from a, from a, uh, visual standpoint, perhaps from a, uh, acting and, uh, the 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 rhythm of the dialogue perhaps it's a, it's a competent directing job but as a film direction i think it's a, it's piss poor so there you go yeah it's a very it's a very poorly directed movie and that makes it feel like it's so proud of itself that they didn't even have to bother yeah well maybe well, like, so. this is a prestige people film will love this and... dialogue screw the rest of it yep yeah well it's like, hold the we're great actors it's a broadway hit and it'll be it'll be fine you know and it's like no no, it's it could have been really good. So what you're saying is this is basically a British Kevin Smith film where it's all about the dialogue <laughs> and there's no visual artistry whatsoever. <laughs> well, and you have Jay and Silent Bob hiding behind one of the curtains in the French King's exactly. Bedroom. This is why you should have a comprehensive tapestry policy of always stabbing yes. wildly at every tapestry <laughs> you run into. Just no, Polonius taught us Polo- a lot of things. Polonius also taught us about yeah. tapestries. You know, if Dungeons and Dragons has not taught us anything, it is that you must search the room completely, including behind the tapestries. behind tapestries. Yeah, at least three or four times. And be afraid of be afraid of statues. Yeah, you can't really be sure of what's know. behind the tapestry until no. you've checked it at least six or seven times. You must check. The Polonius Doctrine is a really good Ludlum novel, by the way. All right, yeah, Phil. No, I like that one. I'm hiring people to analyze all your future selections before I agree <laughs> Oh, <to them>. no. <laughs> I, are you stripping me of my powers? Are you sending me off to a, a, a castle to live in disgrace for 10 years before I'm allowed on the show again? <laughs> Do you think we'll, not, we'll never die? I hope so. I love that What? Scene. I never get the ending of that. It's like... What? Why are they waving at each other? Why is he laughing? Because Stop. they're, they're going to do it love. again next year. Because it's just their usual they Christmas thing. each other feel alive and young, and this <sighs> gives them hope. <laughs> because they're basically an unstoppable power couple. They just let some really unfortunate circumstances named Rosalind and a couple overthrow attempts get in the way. The film is over! I can go drink! Are, are we to assume that the boys escape off into the wild somewhere, they do. or do they just disappear yes. into the castle and everything is like the the thirty minute sitcom episode is over and we're back to square one? <laughs> They're just hiding behind tapestries <laughs> all the time. What shall we do tonight, Richard? The same thing we do every night: <laughs> try to overthrow the king. <laughs> you have ugly talents. And on that note, I'm going to thank my guests 
and close up this edition of the old movie club slash holiday movie club slash movies that are set at the holidays but not actually holiday movie club club Gesundheit. something like that uh i would like to thank my guests dan warren thank you for being here when the fall is all there is jason it matters fair enough steve lutz thank you for being here uh you're very welcome jason obviously the people who like the lion in winter are crazy but maybe they're only a little crazy like painters or composers or some of those men in washington mm-hmm. well well said <laughs> david lore thank you all all i want for christmas is to be king of the popes <laughs> so yeah crazy lisa schmeiser thank you very much i know you know i know i know you know i know we know henry knows and henry knows we know we're a knowledgeable family. <laughs> oh, and Philip Michaels, thank you very much. I apologize for nothing, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> my boys are gone. I've lost my boys. Phil, I am not in the habit of substituting for spurious holiday movies. <laughs> and on that note, I will thank everybody out there for listening. Uh, maybe we'll talk about Star Wars next week. I don't yeah, know. maybe you will. Uh, we'll see you next week. This year, The Incomparable has been brought to you by you. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. We're putting together our best of the year episode. And if you have any suggestions, please send them to podcast at theincomparable.com. Your favorite stuff we've done this year so that we can put it on our special end of the year episode. Thanks.